Well, as I say, it's a great delight to welcome David to St. Helens. I'm going to ask him to come up here in just a moment, but uh, he came from Romania yesterday and Fulham this morning, and I suspect probably this morning's trip was slightly more difficult, but there, <laughs> there we are. Has served operationally in the United Kingdom, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Central Asia, and also describes himself as an amateur father. Uh, come, and, come and join me, David, for a moment. David, it'd just be nice to get to know you before you speak to us in a few minutes' time. Um, just tell us a little bit about what drew you into serving in the army in the first place. Mm, thank you, William. I think I've always wanted to serve in the military since I was a young boy. I freely admit that, but maybe that's the same with many of you. I just didn't grow out of it. So I eventually found my way there. I read engineering at university and did a job in civilian engineering. And I think I just wanted to really challenge myself and do something which I thought would be quite significant. Um, I was also really attracted by the adventure, the people you're working with, the opportunity to be at the forefront of our foreign policy and what we're doing. But I'd be lying as well if I didn't say the chance of ski each winter, climb mountains and sail, <laughs> was quite a draw. Um, so at the age of 25, having done a very short career in engineering, Matthew, my brother-in-law, who's here, actually uh, drove me into Sandhurst, and I haven't looked back since. Mm-hmm. Give, give us a sense of some of the challenges <laughs> and highlights of uh, your time in, in, in the army. <laughs> I often say the army is one of the most selfless and also the most selfish careers you can serve in. Because I think for us in the army, it's full of lots of excitement. And you get to deploy into quite complex situations with a lot of risk and work with just exceptional people. But it also also takes its toll on family life. And my poor, long-suffering wife has to put up with that whilst I'm away having Mm. excitement. Um, There was a moment last summer when I was having a great pub lunch and got a phone call. And I then had to pack up my kit that afternoon, have a couple of briefs, <clears throat> and then we deployed that night. So poor Ruthie had no idea where I was going to, or how long I'd be away for, what kind of danger I was going to be in. <laughs> but she just holds the fort at home whilst we go and have the adventure. So it does take its toll on family life, but it's been a really exciting few years in the Army. And this is a remembrance service, David. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does kind of remembrance mean for you as we go through the service and over the next weekend? Well, I think... It's always a really sad day for us in the military because we don't just remember those who've given their lives over conflicts um, this past century and, and the last one, but there's often, it's often brought quite close to home. So <clears throat> last summer we lost a friend of mine from my squadron. He's about my age, doing a very similar job. Um, so I think I... Yeah, we, we remember him and his family. Um, but also this year, what's going on in Ukraine is very close to home. And I think there's our brothers there fighting in great danger, enormous loss of life in this brutal war. So they come to mind as well. But I think particularly as a Christian, there's amazing hope because although there is some doom and gloom and death is very present at Remembrance Day, actually that's, <clears throat> that's not the end. We have great certainty and hope in the face of death. And I think what I try and remember is the most precious things in life are actually the most secure in Jesus. So he's conquered death and he's also an amazing role model for us. So as the one who is the epitome of selfless sacrifice, we can look back to him on Remembrance Day. Mm. I think that's our inspiration to keep serving. Mm. Well, David, thank you very much. We very, very much look forward to hearing you speak. 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 51. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war 
and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between Sukkot and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. We're now going to skip ahead to verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? We now jump to verse 32. <clears throat> David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, but he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog 
that you come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. I think on Remembrance Day, war often feels distant. But this year, like we saw in that video, with state-on-state conflict erupting in Europe, it's hard to miss the gruesome violence that's going on in Ukraine. But our culture absolutely hates talking about death. It's the one thing we can't control. It's our oldest enemy. But this year, it's been hard to avoid. The Greek philosopher Epicurus summed it up really well. He wrote about it. It is possible to provide security against all other ills. But as far as death is concerned, we live in a city without walls. A city without walls, you can't defend it. Death is the one thing we can't defend ourselves against. And the graphic images of the destruction in Ukraine, which are piped into our phone every day, have underlined this. Death is the enemy that we simply cannot defeat. You might have noticed Reznikov, the Ukrainian Minister of Defence, described the current war in Ukraine as a remaking of the David and Goliath saga. Well, now we've read that passage, I'm going to share some reflections on it, if I may, and I really hope that we'll see that there is one who provides hope and security in the face of death. We'll be referencing that passage, so do keep the handout open in front of you. And we'll look at this in two different sections this afternoon. Firstly, we'll see the grim reality of their situation. But we'll also see a great rescue that is presented to them. So what was the situation? Well, in verse 1, there's a fresh invasion into Israelite territory by the Philistines, their long-term enemies. The Philistines were a phenomenal fighting force. They were the first army of the day to use weapons cast out of iron. And just a couple of chapters earlier, we read of them absolutely rooting the Philistines, killing, sorry, the Israelites, killing 30,000 of them in a single day. Well, after that victory, they then disarmed Israel. They removed all the swords that Israel had, and even the blacksmiths, so they were completely disarmed. And now we meet them once again lined up for battle. But Israel are disarmed and desperate. 
This time, they've chosen to fight a different way. It sounds sensible after that last routing. They've decided that one man would represent each nation, their champion. It's simple. If the champion wins, the nation wins. The Philistines' champion was called Goliath. I'm sure many of you have heard of him before. He was a giant over nine foot tall. He had armor and weapons that weighed about 80 kilos. So that's like the weight of fighting with a fully grown man on your back. He's vast, he's supremely equipped, and he's terrifying. He's the ultimate fighting force of the day. But Goliath represents more than just a supreme military challenge. He's certainly not not normal, is he? He's almost supernatural. And there's something snake-like about him too. The writer pays uncharacteristic attention to what he's wearing, his scale armour. Do you notice that in verse 5? Have a look down. He's dressed from head to toe in scale armour. He's wearing scales. He's literally a snake. And Goliath is supposed to remind us of the serpent from the Garden of Eden. The devil whose temptations brought sin and death into the world. In verse 9, we then hear Goliath shouting taunts and threats at God's people, promising slavery and death for them. He taunts them day and night, and that goes on for 40 days. The Philistines had no doubt who would win. So Goliath is this supernatural, snake-like creature threatening death, and he represents the ultimate enemy against God. But Goliath isn't the only giant in the story. In verse 11, we read of Saul, the so-called king. And the king was supposed to lead Israel out in victory. The first time we met Saul was in chapter 9, and he was described as a giant as well. He was head and shoulders above all of the other Israelite men. He was the human champion. He was the best Israel could muster. But as a military leader... He was supposed to do his duty and go and lead the fight. But he wasn't doing that. Verse 1, we read that the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkoth. That's the active voice. But then it turns to the passive voice in verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled. But you see, there's no leadership. And Saul's also a coward. In verse 11, he's absolutely terrified. Saul heard Goliath's threats. And he was dismayed and terrified. So the best Israel can muster, he's no champion. He can't save his people. So it's no surprise, in verse 11, the people are also terrified. Not even their giant, the king, could fight Goliath. So it's a grim reality for Israel. They're utterly hopeless in the face of death. I remember a time last year when I was leading a patrol and we were completely overmatched. We were isolated. We were over 250 kilometres from the nearest NATO reinforcements. I had no quick reaction force to come and fish us out. We had no air support to lift us to safety. And one of my patrol was injured. We felt very alone that night. And of course, we were trained and equipped, but we were very vulnerable. And I was struck that night by how fragile we were in the face of that overwhelming enemy force. But ultimately, it was a great reminder to me that whatever we attempted to trust in, our determination or our cunning, maybe our military hardware, 
It might be your job security, even our NHS, or the very best insurance company or insurance policy the city could offer you. None of those can actually protect us in the face of death. We live in a city without walls. Well, that's the grim reality that Israel faced, and it looked like certain death. But now let's turn to look at the great rescue that God provides. So verse 12, what does God give to his people facing death? There's a clue here that things are about to change. It starts, now David. Suddenly there's a ray of hope into this desperate situation. Everything had been bleak and hopeless for 40 days of those taunts and threats. But then David appeared on the scene. But he's not exactly the champion that they were looking for. He's overlooked by his own father. His brothers mocked him. He wasn't even dressed ready for battle. He's a shepherd boy. He's just the the smaller one tending the sheep. And he brought some rations forward for the men. But David is the only Israelite whose heart and confidence is in the Lord. In verse 26, at the bottom of that first page, we read that he saw the disgrace and he wanted to remove this man who is defying the armies of the living God. So word gets around, there's somebody with some courage, and David's taken to Saul, and their dialogue reveals that the two men are starkly different to each other. Saul put his faith in military power. David put his faith in God's power. Saul's confidence was in human strength. David's confidence was in God's strength. Because Saul lived by sight, but David lived by faith in God. It's interesting, Saul's approach is actually no different from Goliath. They both looked to their own strength. But what's really interesting is David went out to fight with the weapons of a shepherd. The writer pays a lot of attention to him being a shepherd boy with his shepherd's staff and his shepherd's bag and his shepherd's sling. There's no doubt that he's a shepherd. And his job was to protect the flock from wild animals. Does that that sound familiar? See, the writer's portraying David as the shepherd king of Israel, as the champion who trusted God to give the victory over this supernatural snake, this wild animal threatening Israel, the flock. So in verse 48, David and Goliath made their speeches and they named their gods, as was customary. Then in a flash, David launched a stone and it struck a precision strike on Goliath's forehead. Verse 49 is pretty graphic. The stone literally sunk into Goliath's head and a giant was dead. There's another incredible echo here from the Garden of Eden. Adam failed to trust God and he was defeated by a snake in the garden. But in God's incredible kindness, he promised a descendant of Adam who would crush the serpent's head. And here, the head of this serpent-like giant is crushed. There's clearly something significant going on. And what we're seeing is David is actually a signpost in Israel's history. He's a signpost back to Adam and also forward to Christ. So David did what Adam failed to do in the garden. But more importantly, he points us to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of Israel, who went to Calvary's cross to give his life. David risked his life by going to the valley that day, but Jesus willingly gave his life. On the cross, the Bible tells us that Jesus took the full weight of the, 
uh, punishment and the justice that we deserve for our own personal wrongdoing. Goliath may have had the weight of man on his back, but David, sorry, Jesus went to the cross with the full weight of our sin on his back. David's victory points us to the victory of Jesus on the cross, and that battle takes us to the very heart of biblical truth. David even said it himself. Let's have a look at verse 47. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. Verse 47 is actually the motto of the entire Bible. It's the Lord who saves, not us, not our confidence or our strength. Personally speaking, there have been many times in my career where I've been exceptionally grateful for serving alongside loyal and incredibly professional colleagues in the face of danger. But ultimately, I need to remember, it's the Lord who keeps me safe, not my colleagues or my equipment or my training. The first time that really came to mind was actually the first time I really faced fear as an adult in the military. We're in Kabul, in Afghanistan, in a helicopter at night, flying over the city, and there's an exciting experience of the noise and the jet fumes and everything going on around you on the radio. But suddenly the sky lit up and all the defensive flares, the decoy flares to confuse the enemy fire, lit up the night sky around us. And it's terrifying. We're just sitting ducks in the sky. There's nothing we could do in the back of the, the helicopter. But I could pray. And in that moment, I could remember that it's actually God keeping me safe, not the helicopter or the flares. And I felt a real sense of peace. And it's great to remember that Actually, it's the Lord who keeps us safe, and it's the Lord who saves. I'll never forget that. But let me end with a question, if I may. Where do you place yourself in this battle? It's interesting that there's no middle ground. There's no tiered seating for spectators to watch in comfort. There's no VIP box for the rich and famous who made their own way through great careers or their hard work. Let's not miss the simplicity of this narrative because there are two very clear sides in this battle and it's a grim reality for one and it's a great rescue for the other. Because this battle is a picture of the final day of judgment that the Bible tells us is coming. God is patient and he delayed his judgment on the Philistines for those 40 days of issuing their threats. But there was a point when justice came and everything they had built their life upon was rendered useless. At Her Majesty's funeral, the Archbishop of Canterbury declared that all of us will face the judgment of God, and yet all of us can be rescued through faith in the Saviour. That Saviour for Israel was David that day, but for us, it's Jesus Christ. And the only way to be rescued from death is through trusting in Jesus. So which side are you on? Are you in the Philistine camp of self-reliance and strength and achievements? Well, friends, when God's judgment falls, those are useless. Or are you on David's side? You might face mockery and appear weak, but ultimately we share in God's glorious victory through the cross. Well, as there are just two sides in this battle, there's actually only two types of people in the world. Just like the Philistines, many defy and ignore God's king, or others, like David, humbly submit to God and bow their knees before him. Well, today, as we remember those 
who've given their lives for our freedom. Let's also remember Christ, our champion, who defeated death by laying down his life to share his victory with all of us who trust in him. Amen.